Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 3. Today I'm speaking with author Janae Marin-Tate, who's written a book, Tea Magic, Spells, Rituals, and Divination in Your Cup. I had a really great time talking to Janae, and she really was a font of information about tea magic and tea divination. And she also shared many stories from her own personal life as her discovering herself as a witch. I really enjoyed my time talking to her, and I know you will too. So I'm going to take you right to my conversation with author Janae Marantate. Welcome to Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm talking with author Janae Marantate. She has written the book, Tea Magic, Spells, Rituals, and Divination in Your Cup. This book came out early this year. Janae, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, For our listeners who are not familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about your early years? Where are you from? Well, I am originally from a little town in Oregon called Forest Grove. I guess that is in between Portland and the ocean, kind of the bottom of the foothills before you go over the hills to get to the ocean. And um, so Forest Grove, Oregon. And then Portland later on, as you grow up, you get bigger cities. And then I um, did some soul journeying in my 20s and lived in New Orleans and uh, Dallas, Texas, and then migrated to uh, Central California um, outside of Sacramento. So I'm still close to Portland, um, about a nine hour drive but I don't have to deal with all the rain all the time. So I am uh, kind of in a better climate, but close enough to get home if need be. When were you in Dallas? I was in Dallas from like 1998 through 2005. Oh, wow. I lived there in the 80s. Did you ever go to the Start Club? Can't say I knew where that one was. I don't know. That might have been gone by that time. Sorry about that digression. I just got excited because I used to live there. Yeah, no, Um, Dallas is, I'm a big fan of Texas and I'm a big fan of Dallas. Um, It's a great city. It's um, very LA with just bigger hair and nicer boots. And and a a freeway designed by Dr. Seuss. Yeah, then there's the mix master. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, at what point in your life did you really become conscious of the fact that you were a witch? Well, I suppose I grew up with hippie parents and we did a lot of outdoor living and, you know, very, very apropos to Oregon in the 70s and 80s. And, um, I guess I just always knew I had connection to nature because it was always part of my life. We get so many things from our parents, our belief system, our ways of being. And when you're just kind of raised in the woods and raised camping and raised to, you know, honor the nature spirits, you just kind of realize when you get into you know, other institutions like school or jobs and you look around and you're talking to people and you realize, oh, you don't offer foods to the Fae on Thanksgiving? Oh, I guess we are different. And (laughs) I, you know, so I didn't really notice until, until really I got out of Oregon because I think Oregon is filled with a whole bunch of 
naturey, nutty, fruity people. And um, so I guess, when did I realize I was an actual witch? I suppose I really started claiming the title witch probably in my 20s because then that's when I started to realize, oh, I am, I do these things. I guess this is witchery. And so, yeah, I guess that. For many people, they had like a galvanizing moment where they read something or something kind of called to them either in books or elsewhere. Was there anything that kind of was like an epiphany moment for you where you felt the goddess or you kind of felt connected or was that kind of always part of your life growing up? It's definitely part of my life growing up. I, um, definitely part of my life growing up. We, um, in, we used to go and I still do go to this event every year in outside of Eugene called Oregon Country Fair. And um, as a child, I remember being around the drum circle. And I just really remember feeling the heartbeat of the drums. And I think I had an outer body experience as a child. That's what I would explain it as now. And I think it was around, so I was about eight or nine when I realized, oh, there's something so much more to to magic and religion than Jesus Christ. So I got that when it was a when it was a drum beat around a drum circle with a bunch of pagans and hippies and gypsies dancing around. I love that. Everybody has different experiences with community. Were you able to find others that followed the same path or were you did you were you kind of isolated? Gosh, I think in the pagan and witch community, we often um, are, start out solitary or we'll find that bookstore that we really connect with. And, you know, if we're lucky enough that they offer classes or courses or community there, but I think that's one of the sad parts early on. I think it's easier now to find more witch community than it was in the 80s or 90s for sure. And like yeah. any very small community or any esoteric small community, there's oftentimes like weird bickering and wars. Like you got to worship the goddess like this. No, you got to do it like this. And so that kind of tears apart small, small groups. And, and that's really unfortunate. But I think now there's a better cohesion on people just really understanding we all find magic are on our own path and we share with each other our belief systems. And, you know, Wicca is a religion and I am not Wiccan, but I am definitely right. a witch. And, but I, I like a lot of the Wiccan values. I think most witchy people kind of relate to some of those, just like we can relate to other spiritual teachings and find value in those too. So I would say growing up um, in the 80s, so I was a teenager in the 80s, so that was the real goth movement, and so there was a lot of, you know, love and witchery there, and Susie and the Banshees, yeah. and, you know, that whole darker side that kind of called this over. Were there any authors that kind of spoke to you during this time period? I know that I really got into, like, um, Drawing Down the Moon, uh, Spiral Dance, uh, Reading Green Egg Magazine. Was there anything that kind of popped out to you that really appealed to you? Any specific authors? When I was 16, I um, 
I wasn't doing so good in school and I was teen. I um, wasn't doing so well in school and I had gotten in trouble and I wasn't reading and I, I got grounded and I had never really been grounded before. And so I was given a book and it was the biggest book I had ever seen in my life. And I threw the most giant fit about reading this book. I was so mad about it. And I had to read one chapter at a time and give a report. And I just was, and the book was The Mist of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley. And so I suppose that would have been the book that really changed my life and really introduced me proper to God-Goddess relationship in the world. And um, the thing about reading that book is in the beginning, I was just one chapter at a time and given the report, one chapter at a time and the report. But the part that really spoke is when my mom walked in and I was reading it without being told to. So that's the real gift and magic of, of reading and reading about topics of interest in magic. I, 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 um, I have to say that book uh, had the same effect in my life. And I, I know so many people who were affected by that uh, book as well. And so I was really uh, pleased to hear that that was the same for you as well. Yeah. And I just love how it was introduced to me as a punishment and turned out to be like the biggest joy ever. And the funny thing about that book is so I read it when I was 16 <laughs> and I read it when I was uh, 22 and um, I've recently turned 50 in my life and I just finished it again for the third time a few days ago. And I will say reading it as a full grown woman, as opposed to a teenager or someone in the beginning, in my early twenties, I got a whole new perspective and a whole new view. So I really recommend to anybody that has read that book that came out in the eighties anyway. And if they read it then to take time to read it again, you, it's just a whole different story. I mean, your, your favorites are there, but the, the lessons and the intensity is just really, it's really beautiful. Yeah, I should go back and read it again. It's been a while. I still have the copy from the 80s. Yeah, it's really good. It, it really surprised me on how much I forgot and how much I really, really enjoyed it. What changes have you seen in paganism since you became a pagan originally? Or a witch, I should it's say. A little more, um, it's a little more understood and a little more open-minded. Like, I don't know. I, I try to only surround myself with open-minded people, even though that's very difficult sometimes. But I do feel just the entire world has become a little more woke to um, other spiritual practices, to other other love practices, just other ideas. So I would feel that it is more of a, um, you can just be a little freer about your answers and about who you are today, as opposed to when I first started walking down a magical path. But I will say when I first started walking down a magical path and I was, I was pretty sassy. So if somebody had something negative to say, then I probably got all sassy back and didn't care and just went on my way anyway. So I've never really been a closeted witch or a closeted magician. I've just kind of lived my life. And if people fell off of my 
you know, circle because they couldn't handle that, then they just fell off and did it on their own. Well, I mean, I, I try to talk to my kids about it and, um, I, you know, raised my son as a pagan and my, uh, some of my stepkids are interested, but, um, I think that one thing that's hard for people to understand is I, I know that it was very difficult back in the eighties and nineties, if you were a pagan or a witch to kind of, you know, be out about it because it would affect you in many ways. Has it ever been something that had, you know, negative effects for you in your life? I'm sure. I'm sure it has. Um, I think people get very judgmental. You lose friends in your friendship circles. I've really always been really creative and have maintained the living doing my own thing. So I've never had to worry too much about it at work because I've always had like my own businesses. And the times that I did have work, I could definitely see the judgmentalness on certain faces and certain horrors if I would start talking about my life because you tell them, you know, oh, I'm a witch. And then they conjure these own pictures in their head and, and then yeah. they get all. But fortunately for me, I grew up really in an open-minded family and I just maintained an open-minded path of life through my own workings whether I was you know in the early days I was making jewelry and then I had a aromatherapy company for 10 years and then I moved into my tea company for the last 12 13 years and I want to talk to you about um your new your book um tea magic spells rituals and divination in your cup um this book came out earlier this year and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about it and uh, have our listeners get an idea of what the book's about. So tell us, what is tea witchery? I think tea witchery, really, tea is the second most consumed beverage in the world. The first being water. So tea is very intimate and tea is a very big part of many people's lives around the world. And tea witchery really kind of boils down to water and the plant essence. And so we know how powerful water is. It's a sacred element. We call it in, in a direction. We, you know, we can't live without water. So there's the water part of tea. And then the tea, tea proper, that goes into your cup carries its own vibration of health and magic and life sustainability throughout century after century. And that also lends to the herbs that you could put in tea also. That's not tea proper, but an herbal tea sane or concoction. And when you fill your cup with water and, and the vibration of these plants and teas, then you imbue that into you and you're able to move forward with, you know, your let me back up a little bit so okay. when you yeah so when you brew your tea and you imbue your tea you're able to take these these conscious and subconscious and collective consciousnesses into you so what i mean by that is tea witchery very simple we know about tassiography so tea leaf reading i'm not talking yeah. about that necessarily I'm talking about when you hold a cup of tea and you're having a conversation with your friends, your family, your water 
in your tea carries that vibration. We learned what in Jurassic Park and the dinosaur steps on the ground and the water jiggles. We see yeah. there how water carries vibration. So if you are to open your day with a cup of tea or your afternoon with a cup of tea and you have a mantra going over your cup of tea, like something, you know, today I feel happy, joyous, and successful. And you repeat that a few times over your tea, it imprints its vibration onto the tea. And now you imbue that into you so you can carry physically with you that mantra of I am living happy, joyous, and successful. So that's one element of tea witchery. When then, then you that's just the water part. Then when you add the different herbs or the different tea proper and their um, correspondences, then you get to put that into you also. And it's just a big connection because water connects us. The fact that tea has been around for so many centuries connects us. And the darker the tea you can begin to kind of scry into it like a dark mirror or a crystal ball. So there's just so many elements of tea witchery. I see tea witchery as using tea in your magical practices. And so that's really what I'm explaining is just tea witchery is using tea in your magical ways. I really yeah. like, I'm um, celebrating a dumb supper at Samhain with my family and, um, in your book, you talk about honoring the sacred dead with um, tea. Can you talk about that a little bit? Mm -hmm. So because tea has been around for so long and just we forget in the U.S. how important tea is. I mean, we weren't around during the Boston Tea Party where all of a sudden we were being taxed so high on this thing that we wanted to have every day that we started a war. And I often say that in my tea company, there's no tax on tea, we want a war for that. And some people are like, huh? And then some people get it. And so when you are having a dumb supper and usually people are calling in their ancestors. So their grandmothers, their grandfathers, their great-grandmothers, their great-grandfathers. And of course, you know, younger relatives that may have passed. But our greats and our grands, they had a relationship with tea because it was prevalent and it was necessary and it was important. And it was, you know, had a certain like affluence. Um, what am I looking for? Affluence to it. And yeah. so to honor your, your relatives with a fine cup of tea is bringing them an offering, an offering of something that they probably enjoyed and bringing them an offering of a vibration and bringing them a tea party to celebrate them with or to ask them how they're doing with over a cup of tea. Your book has a lot of information about tea and you highlight the six different types of tea that there are and how they're brewed. Can we talk about this a little bit? Sure. Well, there are so many regions that grow tea, right? From China and beyond. It started out in China and then grew to India. Now there's tea in Thailand. There's just tea everywhere these days. So there's really more than, than six different types, but the ones that I talked about are the most common. And so... There's, let's say, black tea, green tea, white tea, yellow tea, puer. Um, what else am I leaving out? 
I think I threw in um, Lapsing Souchong too, just because of the really intense flavor. Um, but anyhow, that's a that's a process. It's really about the processes that they are cured and dried over. So white tea is the newest tea, like the little tea buds that come up off the plant and have these little silvery hairs. That's, and they're plucked right at their growth. That's the lightest in caffeine, lightest, but still has some lightest in flavor. Green tea, it's, it's all the same plant. It's just how it's prepared. Green tea is um, a little more robust, a little more full grown, the plucking the tea. Green tea was really all that was ever drank. It, we ended up with black tea being cured and fermented um, because of, as the tea would come from China to get to Europe, it'd be on the ships and then it would get like hot and cold and hot and cold on the ships. And by the time the tea got to Europe, it would be um, black. So the Chinese didn't understand, well, what do you mean you want black tea? We only have green tea. So that's how black tea came <laughs> about. And then yellow tea is just a really different kind of process. Like I, I just use this really layman um, example of like, you know, when you set a swimming pool outside on the yard and then you move it in a few days and it's yellow underneath. Right, so that's right. kind of how it's it's dried, you know, kind of dried damp and in a dark box. And that's how you get a yellow tea. It's kind of expensive. It has a very vegetal kind of flavor to it. Um, so Pu'er is a tea that is packed into a cake and steamed, and they can last a long, long time. They can be from like a quarter size up to a plate size, and then you just like break it off and make this really earthy, rich tea. It's probably the darkest, most full-bodied tea that there is because it is, it's got microbials in it. It's kind of doing its thing. It's rotting thing for lack of a better term but it's really beautiful yeah. has like undertones of chocolate and earth and tobacco it's, it's great tea it can be spindy so brew times okay so i know in the tea proper community there's like the exact brew time for the exact cup of tea and i think that the gu their guidelines are important for sure a nice hot, hot boiling water will really bring out a black tea flavor really well. Also, it's really helpful for um, really stiff uh, herbs like cinnamon or ginger. But boiling water doesn't go well over green tea. It'll burn it and make it a little bitter. Um, mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's the longer, the stronger. It's the longer you steep your tea, the stronger it is. And that's really what people are trying to get is a flavor profile like that. And I feel, pour your water over it. Doink your tea ball up and down. That's a professional term, by the way. If you like the way it tastes, you did it. It's right. It's perfect. Go with it. I guarantee your grandmother did not time out the tea and, and brew it to a certain temperature. I guarantee she didn't. Now, maybe you had one that did. Okay. You know, that's not, it's not a bad thing. It's however you want to drink your tea. If you want it really light and weak, don't steep it very long. Don't pour boiling water over it. If you want a strong, robust black tea, boiling water and steep it for a long time. 
So I guess that's with my tea witchery, a little more the anarchist punk rock, you know, just go with it, make it happen. Do you like it? Good, you did it. What are some of the health benefits of drinking tea? Well, I like the health benefits of drinking tea over coffee. I mean, I, I do have a cup of coffee every now and again in the mornings, but tea doesn't seem to crash you down as hard as coffee. It also might not wire you as fast as coffee. So you might not get that, that morning jolt, but you still get elevated, 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 but it's not as a hard of a crash. So it's easier to drink tea through the day. So all of a sudden you're not at your desk, like being all jittered out. So less jitters. It um, carries um, antioxidants, which really helps to fight like poisons in your body that we're getting from pollution, that we're getting from toxins in our food that we're eating, really helps to push out any kind of toxins. Green tea and black tea have, have the same benefits. There's just more benefits in green tea because of the less of the processing that it goes through. But they both have the same benefits, including weight loss benefits. So it can really help you curb your appetite because you're just not feeling as hungry because your body is getting more nutrients from tea than it's getting from coffee or soda. So you're feeling a little more satiated, you're feeling less thirsty, and you're feeling a little more focused. Um, tea has the ability to really help you um, focus in on tasks and things that you're working on rather than being kind of scattered. Now, when I was in England, I would often, uh, my British uh, counterparts say, oh, Americans know nothing of brewing tea. You know, you guys are barbarians, you use tea bags, blah, blah, blah. And there's always been a lot of debate on uh, the right and wrong way to brew tea. What is, what is your, in your opinion, the right and the wrong way to brew tea? Tea bag versus loose. Yeah. Um, you know, tea bags are so convenient. I own a loose leaf tea company. So I like to use tea balls or um, like a French press to, to brew tea with. Um, the thing about the tea bags is they were given out um, like in the 1920s as a sample. That's how the, a tea supplier gave, put it in the mail and gave it to everybody as a sample to try their tea. It was like in this little gauze mesh bag. I don't know, I wasn't there. But what happened was people thought, oh, you throw it in the water and that's how you make tea. And it just blew up out of convenience. And so maybe that did happen in the US, but it really took only like five, six years before it just caught on like wildfire. And then everybody was brewing tea in a bag just out of the simplicity of it. I like loose leaf tea because it's generally fresher tea. Oftentimes the tea in the bags is like tea dust. You know, I feel like sometimes Lipton is just cleaning the tea off their conveyor belt or sweeping it up off the floor and putting it in tea bags. So loose leaf tea has a tendency to be fresher, um, more vibrant tea and herbs that you're drinking. But yeah. Same with iced tea. Iced tea happened by an accident too at Chicago World's Fair in 1904. Super, uh, super hot, just unseasonably hot. And there's this tea distributor there going, what am I going to do? I'm serving hot tea. And he ran over and got some ice and poured it on ice. And everybody said, oh, tea, it's on ice. And then boom, iced tea was built. So 
you know, the greatest things happen by accident most of the time anyway. So again, back to, to what's the difference between a brewing tea bag or loose leaf. I'm going to have to stick with the good old fashioned American. Do it how you like it. Do it. I like that. Your book, Team Magic, has been out a couple months now to rave reviews and much success. What's next for you? Well, so I am really, this is kind of the, the book has kind of been the big thing. I've owned my loose leaf tea company, Kitchen with Gourmet, for about, well, 13 years I created it. And so I... It's incorporating the book now into the business, right? And so right. I am now moving kind of into more wholesale than I had ever done before. Cause I've really been just like direct to public. You know, you get on my website, you buy your tea, or you see me at an event, you buy your tea. And now um, because like Llewellyn is such a big publisher and so many people have metaphysical stores, I've really tried to work on building like tea racks like rounder racks that people can put in their store next to the books and so I'm learning how to do that I'm not, I'm not the best at it here at our at our warehouse we are we are learning um, baby steps because you know it's it's difficult it's it wholesale is difficult when you've just done retail and um also just really growing tea of the month. Like I've been working on a tea of the month for the last few years. People join, people have tea. You get a tea, a sample and a mystery gift every month. And then seasonally we do crowdcasts where we get online and do tea magic together and tea rituals together. So oh, just, nice. yeah, we just do those. And yeah, I guess I'd like to write a second book also. I've been started I've started working on that a little bit. They haven't asked oh, nice. me, but you know, I, I'm really into the, don't ask permission, just ask forgiveness and just keep writing the book. So new things, you know, as I've gone over the book and as people have talked to me and like, hey, what about this, what about that? Like, oh yeah, maybe let me write that down. So now before I know it, I have a whole another book coming. <laughs> so eventually I'll get that finished in the next year or so. Janae, I want to thank you for being on the podcast, and um, I, I wish you uh, the continued success of your business and your book, and again, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks, Dean, for having me. I... That was my conversation with Janae Marin Tate. We have links to her book, Tea Magic, in the bio, as well as a link to her website where you can purchase tea from her and many other items. Next week, we're going to be talking to Phyllis Currot, who is an activist, an author, high priestess, and much more. We're going to be talking about her groundbreaking book, Book of Shadows in Multiple Editions, Wicca Made Easy, Spells for Living Well, and A Love Spell, as, as well as many others. I had a great time talking to Phyllis, and we discussed many aspects of her life and her awakening in witchcraft. That'll be on the po podcast next week. I hope you have a great week, and until then, thank you for listening to the podcast.